Hey, it's Sarah and Kristen. Welcome back for another episode. We are so grateful if you've returned to listen to us, or indeed if you're a first-time listener, welcome. In this episode, we talk to Brisbane-based Rob Saunders, the man behind the heartfelt documentary In the Footsteps of John Stewart. This short film is currently touring in Australia with the Wild Adventure Film Festival and covers Rob's incredible personal and historical journey to find his great uncle John's grave following a tragic adventure which ended in his death in an unrecorded location on a Tasmanian mountainside. In this episode, we mainly focus on the development and making of the film, which involved an expedition into the wilds of Tasmania for Rob and a select team of friends. We chat to Rob about many aspects of what a remote bushwalking and climbing adventure like this entails. We also chat about the logistics behind filming your own adventure and touch briefly on Rob's recent trip to Gari, previously known as Fraser Island, and his aspirations to create another adventure-based film, which we would be so excited to watch as well. As it is becoming the case with many of the awesome everyday adventures we get to chat to, we barely scratch the surface of Rob's adventure knowledge and experience. Rob did also prompt us to include an acknowledgement of country in our episodes, which has been an oversight on our parts thus far. So, with that in mind, we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and seas where this podcast is being recorded, the land of the Gubby Gubby people on the Sunshine Coast. We pay respect to their elders past, present, and those emerging. We also have some big news. <laughs> We've launched an Into the Wee Hours podcast Patreon account. As much as we're doing this for fun, podcasting certainly doesn't come without its own financial costs, especially now that we've bought a lot of fancy gear for our very own studio. So while we are still absolutely doing this with the fun at heart of it, we would also be so grateful if any of you listening would be inclined to throw a few dollars our way. Even just the cost of a cup of coffee a month would make a really huge difference to us. There's absolutely no pressure, but we decided to put it out to the universe since we really want to make this podcast a long-term thing and be in the position to continue to chat to loads of amazing everyday adventures and to build a community alongside that. So check us out on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash into the wee hours podcast. We hope you enjoy this fascinating chat with Rob. Cue the music with Kristen. to episode 14 of the Into the Wee Hours podcast. My name is Sarah Pendergrass and I am here with the wonderful Kristen Vorton. Hello. So today we are bringing a super interesting guest to you. Um, we've been shouting out for suggestions and nominations of people to come onto the podcast and we've also been asking our um, previous guests for suggestions and so Matt Wilkins thank you Matt I feel like you get mentioned in every podcast um, <laughs> nominated Rob Saunders so welcome Rob thank you so much for joining us today thanks for having me guys Glad to be here. we're really excited about this conversation we've just been having a bit of a chat off air beforehand neither Kristen nor I have met Rob before so we're so grateful for your time and we're really looking forward to this thanks for letting me into your basement <laughs> 
<laughs> not weird at all. It's not creepy, guys, okay? <laughs> it's like, hey, we don't know you. Would you like to come into the basement and sweat? Because it's pretty warm in here. So. It's summer. <laughs> it's summer. So, again, to paint the picture for everybody, I've like to kind of soundproof the room. Literally, I told Rob, I would just have shoved a whole bunch of things into a carpeted room. And like on the windows, I have pillows and stuff. There's like no ventilation. So, we're all going to get really hot and sweaty. <laughs> But yeah, thank you again for being here. Like you live a very busy life. So it's an honor to have you around for the podcast. Yeah, indeed. So we're going to stick to our usual format and we're going to kick off with some quick fire questions. We haven't told Rob what these are, so we're just putting him straight on the spot here. (laughs) So Kristen, do you want to kick off? Sure. What it, so Rob, to introduce everybody, um, we were just kind of talking about how you do a lot of rock climbing and you are almost running out of climbs, right? That was the thing that you said. What's your favorite place to climb? Ooh, favorite, favorite place in Australia would probably be Arapiles in Victoria. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, a marvelous place and got a long history of uh, climbing. I haven't run out of things to do there. There's thousands of routes, but it's a great <laughs> spot to go. But uh, based in Brisbane and uh, coming through COVID, it's been a long time since we've been able to get down there. Yeah, fair enough. And so that leads us very nicely onto the next question, because obviously we have been restricted with where we can go. So if you could go on an adventure anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? Uh, That's a great question. I'd be torn between uh, the Tibetan Plateau uh, and a a bikepacking trip and possibly Kingdom of Mustang somewhere like remote for walking in the desert, uh, also in Nepal. Have you been to either of those places before? A couple of trips to Nepal, um, not to Tibet. It's a bit harder to get into Tibet. Yeah. Uh, but I kind of really like going to places off grid where the phone don't ring and where you can really immerse yourself in a different place and culture and um, switch off. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah I awesome. love that no signal thing for sure. Yeah. yeah. Special because it's not in many places anymore. Yeah. That's too. Amazing. Yeah. It's harder yeah. to find. So when you get it, it's awesome. Yeah. So special. All right. A genie shows up. You can be the Aladdin genie if you wanted to, or it's just a normal genie. He's granted you three wishes. What do you wish for? Oh, uh, I would wish for a uh, shape-shifting, I think, is always a good one. So you oh. can transform yourself into anything and make That's yourself useful for something, or uh, you can make yourself invisible as well, So, uh, and you can be a fly on the wall, so... I love that. That's a good one. All right. So that's one wish. Uh-huh. <laughs> You've got two Right. <laughs> right. Two more wishes. Uh, I would wish for uh, endurance that doesn't waver a week into a trip. That is an excellent wish. I wouldn't have even thought of that. That is amazing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> end, of, end of the week, you, you know you're tired. And yeah. imagine if you had the same amount of energy for your second week of a trip as you did yeah. in the first. Why? That's, oh, these are awesome. These are so questions. good. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so what's your third one? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> somebody else to carry all of my gear on adventures because <laughs> I can't carry enough food. <laughs> or you could just wish for maybe everything that you do carry to just weigh nothing. Yes. There you go. <laughs> yeah, or my, I've always wanted to uh, be responsible for inventing uh, dehydrated water because water... <laughs> Is always the bane of my existence to find it, to carry it, to purify it, to melt it, to whatever. Water's, you know, it's the fountain 
isn't it? Dehydrated water. Oh, I would have loved that. When I was carrying 10 kilos of water on my bike on that last trip, I would have loved to open a little packet of dehydrated water. (laughs) So good you open it and it just automatically fills up with water. Yeah. It'll be like one of those bath bombs, you know, you like you pop pop it in and it just like explodes into this huge thing. <laughs> it's 21, 21, surely somebody's working on that, Hopefully, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you'd think so. A, a couple of uh, years ago, we went to do a uh, Larapinta track in Central Australia. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, great, it's warm. Um, we can do all this ultralight gear. We can take all this minimalist stuff. And then we looked at the distances and the amount of water we had to carry. And I put all my ultralight pack stuff away and just pulled out my expedition pack because i was going to need to carry 10 10 liters of water some days wow and then you can't carry a flyweight pack to do that so yeah Yeah. and it's hot i think you know deserts and you 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 know from your from your bike uh bikepacking trip that your fluid is the um it's the cornerstone of your trip if you get that wrong then everything else doesn't work out um so it's harder than mountaineering desert trips i think because you've got to cope with the heat and the dehydration not just the cold and the dehydration yeah interesting yeah. and we've lost all the mountaineering listeners <laughs> sorry guys you can't go anywhere anyway <laughs> and it's not just having the water like you alluded to it's finding the water uh-huh. to start with like just those very simple requirements mm. that will make or break your survival yeah. essentially yeah 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 um, okay, so you've clearly adventured in so many incredible places. What is your most memorable camp spot? Oh, most memorable camp spot. That's a good question. Actually, I think Larapinta Track has some really amazing camp spots um, where you can, you know, camp in the open and there's not like a million bugs to eat you because it's desert and it's very dry and you get full starry skies and, and no... Um, light pollution so you get a beautiful sort of solar and uh you can see the full landscape with the moonlight uh but you get to see all the stars and i think that's a pretty special spot to be in the desert uh they're pretty good in larapinta but have recently just done a, a sea kayaking trip to gari formerly fraser island and uh camping on the on the beaches um on that trip you know was really special as well because it's just such a beautiful environment and uh, although we are on, you know, east coast of Australia, you're getting west coast sunsets. You get sun setting over the water, but uh, you're still on the east coast. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty awesome. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Funny you mentioned Lara Pinta, a previous guest of ours, Rowan Brooks. She had just uh, hiked solo Lara Pinta Trail. Yeah, she yeah. chose that as her most memorable camp spot as well. Yeah, right. And I think she also maybe mentioned like the the colours, that mm. red, like with the sunrise just oh, in the amazing. morning being so Glowing stunning. Red. Yeah. yeah. I can relate to that from being out there as well. It's just so beautiful. Yeah. And I can relate to the Gari experience that you had when Phil and I um, did a bit of a trip around there. It was a few days. We went to the West Coast and me being from the West Coast mm-hmm. in America, mm-hmm. I'm so used to all these beautiful sunsets. Mm-hmm. And so we finally got it. We were like making dinner. I'm beautiful. like, this is amazing. We can finally watch the sun go down yeah. over the ocean. That was kind of a yeah, little it's pretty. home thing for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Mm, yeah. It was beautiful. So I enjoyed that part of it. Not the bugs. Uh, yeah, yeah. Insects, <laughs> midges, mosquitoes, ants, spiders, <laughs> beetles. It's just like kind of part of the deal, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> you kind of like give yourself up for uh, 
Uh, yeah, yeah, not always. Not the fun. best part of the deal. No, no, not the best <laughs> part of it. Um, so the final question, um, I don't know if you listened to the podcast with uh, when we had Luke on. He's a sports psychologist. Sure. Uh, we talked about how gratitude is such an important thing for people, but how it also self-compassion sometimes gets left behind. So we mm. always like to ask our guests, if you were to give yourself a compliment, what would it be? Oh, that's a good question. I think... Uh... I don't really uh, think that I have been particularly any good at any sports um, or any... So you're not allowed to say anything like that on the podcast. <laughs> right. I will stop you there before you go anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> but it's about having a go. And if yeah. it's having a go and giving it your best and trying lots of different things and going lots of places, then I'd say I'm probably willing to throw myself under the bus and have a go and be prepared to fail. And we fail in heaps Heaps of trips and heaps of plans and heaps of climbs don't come off. And, um, you know, we learn a lot from those as well and change plans. And then you kind of forget about the ones that fail sometimes, but they've actually structured the ones that succeed because they've helped you find the right equipment and the right partners and the right weather, time windows and things to do things. So we, you can learn from, we learn more from failures. That's what I'd say. 100%. Yeah. I think that's one of our favorite topics is the failed adventures because oh, yeah. it's, we're so prone as humans to focus on the successes and yeah. you know, those are the things we celebrate. And yet the reality of real adventure is that it might not come off, but that's yeah. like you say, the lessons that are to be learned from that are huge. And you don't well. have to go far to fail either. You can fail really close to home. It's, it's, <laughs> it's so easy. Uh, last year we tried to paddle the Brisbane river on stand up paddle boards from from right up the top where it comes, not from the dam, but from where it becomes uh, consistent water. Mm. And I roped a maid into doing it uh, with us. And um, we set off super early and we got my um, wife Donna, she dropped us off um, up the top of the river and we set off with a gusto. And I, I knew it was going to be weedy, so I took the central fin out of the um, stand-up so it didn't get stuck. And I like, we won't need leashes, get rid of them. And we've got backpacks and... Anyway, so we paddled off down the river and we paddled and we paddled and we paddled and the stand-up paddle boards without a central fin drift like a banana going downstream, <laughs> right? <laughs> and it was so inefficient and you had to control the direction so much. And then we were going pretty well, but um, the tide uh, changed and then we were like, it was like paddling uphill and then the southeasterly trade wind blew in and it was like, then we're, we're paddling on our knees uphill <laughs> And then about four o'clock in the afternoon, uh, my friend Hank says, well, I'm supposed to be at a wedding tonight. And I'm like, I didn't know you had a wedding tonight. <laughs> so um, we got out at, um, at a ferry and uh, he called an Uber driver to come and pick him up and he's dripping wet. And he had to go um, and pick up his car in, and the Uber driver didn't want him to get in the car because he was wet. So he had to go pick up his car, drive back to the ferry, pick up the stand-up paddle boards, drive us home and then get to a wedding like two hours late total fail <laughs> that's is so good but also the lesson there is it's like you are i mean i don't know whether you anticipated that was going to end that way but it's being prepared to give it a go regardless yeah as well. yeah that's yeah great. we thought we had it and it's like we got <laughs> we got schooled yeah yeah like i've got all the best ideas yeah nobody else thought of this we got it yeah <laughs> yeah so yeah we got some equipment wrong uh but I think, you know, we need to get different stand-up paddle boards, so we need more gear. Um, we need a faster board, a 
better battle. <laughs> the tide and the wind to be right, yeah, maybe, you know. Deep, so just yeah. planting it in, just yeah. for the best. Yeah. yeah. Pay some attention to conditions, yeah. How good is Uber is the modern day saviour there as well? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At least when you're close by, probably not again. Yeah, I don't think this is Uber where I was. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. You made it for, through the uh, quick fire questions. Now, again, Sarah always likes it when they're short and sweet, but I prefer Sorry. a little bit of a story off to the side. So, yep. <laughs> I'm, I'm rolling with it now. I asked questions there and I was conscious of it. So, yeah. <laughs> so to get into kind of the meaty part of everything that we've got you on for, Rob, we really do like to open up the floor for people just to kind of introduce yourself. So we like to throw the mic at you and go, all right, Rob, give us a bit of an origin story, where you're from, what you've been doing and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, I've been living in uh, uh, Brisbane for the last 20 years, but mostly grew up in in Sydney and spent uh, my early years in the UK. So I've got to move around move around a bit. I, I moved to Brisbane though uh, in oh, 2001 and took a job opportunity and I'd only just been married for a little while and we were like not tied to Sydney so it was a good time to move and you know start afresh in another city and fresh opportunities. So um, that changed really the area that we moved to somewhere where we had done really no activities and we hadn't really, we didn't know anybody here. So um, I guess I came with a background though from uh, an outdoor upbringing of, um, you know, camping and canoeing and bushwalking and fishing and just think, I thought everybody did that when they were growing up and then I found out they were actually in an apartment at Mooloola Bar or somewhere, you know. <laughs> so we were, you know, I, I feel fortunate that I was given the opportunities when I was young, spent a lot of time uh, in the bush and in the outdoors doing things. I've got two brothers, so we, we spent a lot of time together. And uh, it sort of led me into those activities when I was uh, a teenager. Uh, so other than wanting, you know, uh, a fast car, which I never had, um, we managed to uh, start to find our own areas of activities and bike riding and I really got into bike riding a lot actually it was something it was the easiest method of getting around and um, it was still all BMX and mountain bike there was no fancy uh, sorry BMX and road bike there was no fancy mountain bikes then so um, it was it was good opportunities so that sort of helped me establish I really loved outdoor activities and uh, the people that I could associate with and they were motivated to go and do things and um, see different places and to travel and uh, they sort of, you know, create a foundation for you as you're growing up to enjoy what's around you and what's available to you. You don't always have to go far away to do that, although travel did, you know, become a bigger part of my life. And uh, uh, after I finished school, I spent time um, traveling around the US and I worked a summer camp job and uh, I bought a big old van and drove around a whole bunch of states of the US and just was a climbing bum for a year and uh that was a lot of fun yeah and I met a lot of people that I'm still friends with some people from those early trips and once you sort of have cut the ties from home and actually having a job or being gainfully employed then you can really find creative ways to get to places and do things with not a lot of resources and uh, they're good lessons I think um in my life that it's not money-based uh that uh, brings me happiness getting places and and experiences. experiences, you know, and doing things and um, sort of start to push your boundaries and work out, um, you know, what 
is fun and what is fun and adventurous and what's adventurous and what's safe and what's then actually not safe and you probably shouldn't be doing that and maybe we should get some skills and so just started working in uh, industries and jobs that gave me those opportunities so I could you know pursue them yeah fantastic yeah and so you were in the states and doing all of your traveling and climbing Mm -hmm. and then how did you come back here what happened there ran out of money <laughs> the money eventually <laughs> it ran out of money and I couldn't uh couldn't afford to, to stay much longer although it was you know we lived pretty cheaply uh, a lot of the time but um I think I came back for a wedding and then worked for six months and went oh that's enough money that's more money I've had in the last year so you know spent a year in uh in Canada and uh did all kinds of dodgy jobs in you know ski resorts and kitchens and um, you know, I worked for a fly fishing store for a while and I didn't know anything about fly fishing. <laughs> um, and I worked as, uh, as a, like a hand to, uh, for fly fishing guides that were doing heli guiding and, oh, wow. you know, just sort of hung around the edges and found ways to, uh, adventure and travel places. I hitchhiked to Alaska and you just do different things when you've got the opportunity and no responsibilities. As so, you do. As yeah. you do. <laughs> You know, and then um, I guess uh, spent some time uh, climbing around in Europe, um, climbing mountains, and sport climbing was really becoming a stronger um, destination place to go in Spain and uh, in France and Germany. So spent as much time as I could making it to climbing areas to um, check out all the different sort of styles of climbing around Europe as well. Yeah, wow. It's incredibly well-travelled. That's for sure. Lots of places to go, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, But you're in Australia. So what are you you doing here now? Well, we we can't leave because we're in a a police state and there's a great wall of forex at the border. So we can't even go south south into New South Wales. Um, It's funny, though, with uh, COVID, it did make people... um, sit back and assess where you're at and what your opportunities are right where you live. And uh, there's so many things that uh, can be done uh, and opportunities right where you live. And it's easy to, oh, I might just go to New Zealand or maybe I'll go to the US and I'd really like to climb this mountain or or something like that. But uh, the last couple of years, it's it's been really easy to fill the card with uh, adventures and activities uh, and opportunities right Right here in southeast Queensland, even or all of Queensland, and uh, it's it's led to some trips um, that otherwise probably wouldn't have come about. And uh, yeah, recently we went to Gari, um, formerly Fraser Island, to paddle the whole length of the island uh, unsupported, and that was terrific. And I probably wouldn't have done that trip if you know we were able to travel around the world. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good point. Like I recently did this outback bikepacking mm. trip and same thing. Like I'd previously pre-covid was looking at Iceland and yeah, Canada I'd and love to go there. Yeah, indeed. Oh and all these incredible places that I would still yeah. definitely plan to go to. But it does make you reframe and like reassess what's around you. Yeah. And so you mentioned your paddling trip and, and I think Kristen probably touched on it. You said earlier that you feel like you've almost run out of places to climb around here. Is that, was that a big part of the climbing that you've done recently or is that just because over the years you've climbed so much in Southeast Queensland? Yeah, over the years you just generally tick through most of the routes at Crags and uh, 
there's there's definitely uh, routes that are too hard for me that I can't do, but most of the routes that I can do, I kind of feel like I've done. So that's also given us opportunity the last year to find some new crags and develop new areas and put up new routes and new challenges. And that's been super re- rewarding because a lot of the time as a climber, you might travel somewhere else and you climb the five-star climbs at that particular region or that, that mountain or that crag in that style of climbing. But um, not often do you get the opportunity to establish uh, new climbs and uh, create something for future generations and work with the ACOQ, which is the, you know, the Queensland Climbing Association, to help um, the future of climbing in, in access and in safety for future generations. So they're things that are easy to get involved in that are right here. So uh, Queensland's got a real diverse range of climbing, lots of different styles of rock here, lots of different volcanic rock, uh, all the glass houses. You know, there's even multiple sorts of rock in the glass house and different styles of climbing. So we're, we're pretty fortunate to have all that right at our doorstep. Uh, but then if you go uh, out towards Girraween, you've got a lot of granite areas and granite crags and the tablelands quite different and frog buttress where all the traditional climbing is and all the crack climbing. So there's heaps to do. Yeah, so we won't really ever run out. Yeah, not really anyways. Yeah, climbing is something that's super interesting to me, but it's just time, right? Like, Yeah. Yeah, so I love the aspect of climbing, but it's never really been something that comes into play for me. What about you? Well, I have a fear of heights. Oh, right. So <laughs> as much as I would love to give climbing a go, I um, yeah, I'm just useless with heights. I was actually meant to be doing a while ago, an adventure race or a multi-sport race in New Zealand where there was abseiling, so not climbing, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm, abseiling. And mm-hmm. in the lead up to that, I did abseil off Timbiro, which is one mm-hmm. of our local uh, mountains with friends of mine who you might even know. Mm-hmm. They run Climbing Guides Australia, so mm-hmm, Lisa Gumley mm-hmm, and, and mm-hmm. Mason. Yeah. Um. So they were super kind and took me abseiling. And like, it was okay. But, and I went to Rocket, the local climbing gym, and I realised I was okay in that environment if I was just mm. looking at the wall and I could just go up. But it's that, like, being on the edge, exposed, not in a gym, like, yeah. I can really see the appeal in terms of, like, the technicality and just, like, working out the routes. My fingers lasted, I don't know, about two climbs and then Mm -hmm. I was done as well. Like, the strength that's Mm -hmm. required is amazing. But, yeah, unfortunately, I don't have much to contribute to the climbing competition. (laughs) And you're actually up here because of climbing at the moment. You did a – was it a competition yesterday? Yeah, I just went to a social comp at one of the other gyms on the coast, and it was great fun. Uh, It's kind of end of the season, so it's warming up, but it was great. Everyone got together and had a a nice competition yesterday. But I would say on the climbing and the fear of heights, that's a legitimate – feeling and and sensory overload because it is for a lot of people and it's about you know mentally managing the aspect of where you where you are and finding uh comfort and safety is is actually there most of the injuries that uh happen in climbing are actually abseiling injuries because people make mistakes (laughs) on the way down i hate abseiling it's terrifying yeah okay um but uh i think that uh the, the most dangerous uh, activities we um, are involved in are really water sports. Uh, whitewater kayaking is easily, that's a, that environment is so much more turbulent and not in your control, yeah. or big wave surfing would be as well. Uh, I find riding my bike on the road to be way more dangerous mm-hmm. than climbing. It's proper terrifying. 
um, if you're not in a on a good road with a big shoulder. Yeah, um, around here. Yeah. yeah, so it's not. I don't find climbing actually uh, to be a dangerous activity, and I the 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 beauty of climbing is though is that you are there in that moment. You can't be thinking about mm. too much else, and uh, you can choose to move up or you can choose to move down or. Um, you can choose easier routes or harder routes. And there's really such a spectrum of uh, different sorts of climbing that you can do. You just find what's comfortable to you and then pursue it as um, as much as you like. So, That's yeah. cool. Yeah, I do like that aspect of it. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's a really interesting point about the environment and the levels of control or perceived levels of mm. control as well. I know even from um, kayak guiding and mm. being out, I used to guide on Sydney Harbour mm-hmm. and albeit you think it's the harbour, as mm-hmm. you'll be aware, like the conditions out there, if you've got like a, I mean, hopefully you wouldn't be on a tour with 30 knot wind, but it can get pretty wild. Mm. But we would be in conditions where I could, like I knew as a guide, everyone was super safe, but people would be scared. Mm. And it's that thing of if you don't know the environment, mm. your perceived level of fear and danger can be so much greater yeah. than it really is. And that's probably like me in a harness. I'm immediately like, oh, I'm in danger because I'm going to be hanging off this wall. <laughs> but yeah, it's a really, a really good point. Okay, so I feel like we, we talked before, like you've done so many incredible things and we unfortunately can't talk for like six hours as much as we would love to, I'm sure, or Kristen and I would anyway. You'd be sick of me, by <laughs> Well before then. <laughs> An endurance challenge in itself. That's it. Yeah. But yeah, so we were talking about angles and I suppose one of the things that we would love to have a bit of a discussion about is Rob has been involved in this incredible film, which he kindly um, shared with us to preview um, called In the Footsteps of John Stewart. Um, make sure I get that right. And we would love if you would like to talk a little bit about that journey because like, not only is it a really fascinating adventure film, there's a lot of history there. There was an expedition in itself that you went on to create that. And I wonder if you're happy to give us a bit of an overview about what that experience was. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, it, it it's a... It's a it's quite a uh, a long history that story because it started in 1953, and uh, it was really a cold case for for me though you know a couple of years ago because it's just like this in history I'd I'd heard family speak about you know great uncle John he died on a mountain somewhere in Tasmania and so we you know started looking into it uh, maybe about 2017 uh, yeah, okay. started started looking into it I was actually doing a, a winter cradle mountain crossing with my beekeeping friend and I said I think my great uncle died out here somewhere uh, I really should look into that and that was kind of the light bulb moment when I went this is pretty crazy down here what was he doing and it must have been pr- pretty wild here in the in the 1950s like in the golden era of exploration um, so you know come back from that trip and uh, <clears throat> we had a lot of time in huts in the snow freezing our ass off wondering why we were here to think about why somebody would be here. Um, and so started looking into it and, you know, I asked around in, in the family and looked into the records, but this is, you know, well before there was any records kept that are digital. So hard to find information. And so uh, we, we, we found over a, a bit of research that he was actually at Federation Peak on a, on a trip uh, in uh, 1956. So the first ascent of Federation Peak was 1953, the same year as Mount Everest, actually. Yeah, wow. oh, okay. And we worked out that probably more people have climbed Mount Everest than Federation Peak. Um, and it's quite remote. Uh, 
uh, Fed Peak. It's in the middle of the southwest wilderness in south of Tasmania. And uh, it's not easy accessible and it's renowned for being the hardest or one of the hardest uh, bushwalks or range crossings in the country. So those things, you know, they're not hurdles. You just go, oh, that can't be too bad, right? So one day we'll do that. And looked into it and after uh, probably a year's research and finding a lot of dead ends and, and no information and not written up in mountaineering journals. Eventually somebody called me one day and said, Oh, I think I might've found what you're looking for. There's an article in this, uh, Victorian bushwalkers journal, um, about, uh, somebody called John Stewart who died on a trip to Federation peak in 1956. So he sent me that article and that was the most amount of information I got. And I found who wrote the article and, uh, got some friends in Hobart to hunt around and see if that person was still around. And sure enough, he was still alive. Mm. So I got in contact uh, with him and that's not an easy call to make is to ring somebody and ask them about an article they wrote, you know, 65 years ago on somebody who died on a, on a trip. And, you know, you just pick up the phone and speak to somebody you don't know and ask them that. And eventually I did. And, um, you know, kind of asked softly, you know, do, do, can I ask you some questions about it? And, I had a uh, talk to him. His name was Bruce Davis, and uh, he he subsequently passed away after I'd had two conversations with him. So I was lucky I'd called him when he did because he, he he did pass away. But I got to meet his wife uh, a couple of years, or probably a year later, um, in Tasmania when we went down to do some research, and we pieced together enough. It was kind of like uh, watching the end of a movie where you know the outcome, but you didn't know how they got to there. So. Um, it was a, a process of working backwards through the events of something that ended in a fatality and uh, find out who was on that trip and what they were doing there and where they were going. And um, eventually we did sort of put enough information together to put a, put a trip on the calendar. And I think that was February 2018. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah, obviously a lot of research went into it. Um, and in the film you kind of alluded to you needed to track down some of these people and things like that. I'm going to skip a little bit to the end as well and mm. say that you did also find, well, maybe you didn't find, but they found you, some people who were on the trip. That yeah. would have been pretty incredible to speak to them as well. Um, obviously that happened a little bit afterwards. So talk about how you actually got in touch with those guys because I think the, the film had been released and then they called or emailed you guys and said, mm. hey, we've got more information about it. Mm. Is that what happened? Well, we we did the trip in uh, February 2018. It might have been January. I think it's Feb. Uh, and then Nathan, who was filming and uh, recording the trip, he released a trailer for a documentary we wanted to put out on it the, the following year. Mm. And towards the end of the production of the documentary, um, he was contacted by somebody who'd seen the trailer and said, I think that that, that my dad was on that trip. And so, uh, an 80 something year olds don't really have a digital footprint. We couldn't find anybody or the information, uh, easily. So, uh, having them contact us was a, was a miracle actually. And the, so the documentary was, kind of done it wasn't finished but it was done but I'm really glad it happened in the order that it did because if I had found um, 
the couple that, well, they're not a couple, the two people that uh, contacted us and we went and said, hey, uh, I am great Uncle John's, you know, nephew. I just want to talk to you about, you know, a fatality on a trip you went on 60 years ago. Then they probably wouldn't, they build a brick wall around themselves. They don't want to talk about it. And it was a tragedy for them. Uh, they were like in their early 20s when they went on an exciting trip to Tasmania and one of them didn't come back. So having gone to do the trip and had the experience and been and walked in their shoes in them in the, across those miles meant that uh, they were more open to talking to us and that I was a family member. And I said, well, we're not really coming here to like, we're not blaming anybody. We just want to understand what happened. We just want to share your story and we want to um, put some closure on it for uh, for John's sister. So uh, it was lucky it happened in the order it did. Yeah, yeah, I mean, certainly watching the film, that part gave me goosebumps because it really... The, so for people who haven't seen the documentary, it covers Rob's journey in terms of researching um, this tragic accident that happened. And then you and a team of others go on an expedition and essentially follow in the footsteps mm. of your great uncle in remote Tassie in the worst weather. It reminded mm. me of Scotland, seeing all this footage of rain and wind. Sideways. And bleak. Yeah. yeah. Bleak, cold. <laughs> yeah. We would say Drich, I think in Scotland would be the... Uh, the description of that, it was just so... Nearly so a summer's day in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so we see you going on this incredible expedition and at the, the end of the documentary, it's revealed that these two people came forward and it is. it was absolutely a tragedy that they were part of and you can see that decades later, it mm. absolutely hits still so strong mm. in their memory. And it was really fascinating for me just to reflect on things like you went into this same landscape with gear mm. that is like from 2021 like and yeah. it, it was from what i understand it was essentially the gear really mm. that became the failure like a leaking tent being cold and mm. wet for five days and five nights mm. like to think that we're just so fortunate essentially in terms of what we have now and the resources but it really makes you reflect on what they must have gone through and that must have been very emotional for you being out there and having those reflections as well. Yeah, 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 you, you, you're right. You've analysed that pretty good because that's how uh, our team you know, in that location found it, that the conditions uh, really dictate expeditions and, uh, and trips. So to walk in their shoes but with our, all our fancy gear and waterproofs and, you know, packaged foods and things like that and uh, just stop and think that, you know, you might have been eating a can of Spam and you've got a boiled bull sweater on and a, and, a, and a pack that hurts like heck when you wear it. And um, they didn't have very good gear, but the adventurous spirit they had, that didn't stop them, you know. They were like, well, this is the gear we've got and it's kind of the best gear available at the time. Uh, although the tent didn't have a floor, which is kind of a bummer. Mm-hmm. Um, and their sleeping bags or down bags, you know, if they get wet, they don't keep you warm. And uh, they, they, I'd say they suffered a lot. It would have been a very hard trip and, and very tough conditions. And, and that's Tassie, and it's okay to say that, but um, we were fortunate to be able to go there. And uh, it's still a hard trip. The trip is, is just as hard, but certainly the equipment makes it uh, more doable, safer probably. And uh, we were able to, you know, go walk in this footsteps and retrace 
the journey that was what they set out to do. And uh, that was a pretty special thing to do for my uh, great auntie Mari. Yeah. Yeah, indeed, you were paying her respects. It was just incredibly beautiful. Would you like to talk a little bit about what that trip entailed? Like how, how far did you cover? Where were you exactly? Who did you go with? How did you choose your team? Yeah, I'll ask you sure. like six questions in one, which is my yeah. habit. So apologies. I, I, need a, I need a pen. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> how far was the trip? Like what distance did you cover while you were out there? Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's an interesting one because the walking in Tassie is so not straightforward. It, it, it's... It is a jungle of just tangled bush and uh, and wilderness and swamps and uh, mountains and crags on top of crags. Uh, so sometimes I would look at the map and I'd go, right, we're here and we're going to uh, camp up on the plateau at the climbers camp the next night. And that's that's uh, that's only eight kilometers away. We'll be there by lunch. You know, it's like, how hard can that be? And at like five o'clock, you're staggering and going, we're destroyed. We've only just made it before dark, you know? Yeah. Some of the footage, you're literally like, you know, bringing these fallen trees up and you're ducking underneath. And again, you're soaking wet soaking as wet. well. Yeah. Like you can mm. tell from all of your rain gear that it's working mm. quite hard to yeah. try and keep you guys as dry. But I'm sure it still would have even gotten through all of that too. But yeah, just the yeah. 8K of on the road. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. We'll be there in an hour. Yeah versus what you guys were doing i like, got it wrong is incredible almost yeah. every day <laughs> so i'm like we can do that that's no trouble and it's like jesus this is so hard yeah because uh if you were like you know walking in the glass house you would do three times as far in that mm. time and but uh you just can't and that's the nature of the terrain and i don't actually know the total distance yeah. we walked at the 15k the, yeah that's right yeah Yeah, up and down but um the distance in kilometers um i couldn't tell you um how many days were you out there for i think we were we had 14 days um of of food and support and we probably used 12 of it yeah um we probably lost a couple of days to bad weather that we were going to climb on the birchavez plateau on the way out but it was just 100 mile an hour Scottish wind, sideways rain. So roaring 40s, yeah. But uh, it's it's a it's a great place, you know, because it's spectacular wilderness. And from the from the top of Federation Peak, when we did uh, climb the mountain, you can you can see both sides of Tasmania. You can see the ocean on both sides of, of the island, which is pretty amazing. Um, it's, it's remote, yeah. Yeah, spectacular. Had your um, great uncle made it to the top? Did he summit the peak or? We believe he had summited yeah. the peak before he went round. Uh, they were probably going to exit on, I think it was called the yo-yo track. Yo-yo because it just goes up and down the way to get out. Um, and we, we, we're we pretty sure he had and some of the rest of the team had opted to wait for a better weather window and he'd gone up to hell with it i'm going anyway and he'd gone up up the peak and uh there is a scramble uh up the back of the peak and that in itself is pretty dangerous and and, and unsafe and we abseiled down that and uh we we climbed routes on the other side we didn't actually go up that way but coming down i'm like geez this is you know in hobnail of 1950s boots this would have been pretty exciting climbing this peak but he probably pushed the envelope with wet gear and and cold conditions and, and the others chose to wait it out for better weather that never came so they weren't probably much drier 
but uh, they were less exhausted, I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. a good point to make too. And, oh yes. Sorry, I was going to say, it's a really curious contrast in the sense that some things have changed so much, like your gear, mm. like technology, mm-hmm. but actually the landscape itself, mm. when your great uncle was there, you talk about, you know, it's obviously a very protected part of Tassie. Mm. Probably very similar. So when you're looking at that sketchy section, it's like, yeah. oh, that's actually what he was tackling. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. That We, we often stop and thought, wow, this is pretty amazing that um although we have all our fancy gear people were doing this long before we were and uh having you know exciting times and great trips to wild places so um you know the team that you have for a trip such as uh you know federation peak and we i had two friends hank and uh madoc that had both been to fed before and both failed to climb the mountain because weather partners conditions um the exhaustion and going oh, it's just too hard and turned around uh or walked out uh so for them they kind of had uh you know it's like when you don't quite do things as good as you should have or it didn't go to plan or you didn't finish you do have that sort of burning desire want to go back and 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 finish something off so mm-hmm. um that was a great opportunity to go back for the for those guys so they were they were really keen and it was a balance of finding um team members that bought unique skill sets and experience um along because there was there was there was no room for not much room for learning that was it was about knowing how everybody was going to think and how they were going to respond and how good they were in poor conditions multiple days in and uh everything their wearing's wet and heavy and uh are they uh, comfortable at heights um without rope safety or um, are they good at navigation? Uh, can they, uh, work out the logistics of if people separated in three different areas, who's got a stove and who's got food and, uh, how many days could they wait a storm out there and all these things. And there's no communication out there. There's no phone service and things. And, um, we didn't take radios and stuff like that. So having a really reliable team, um, enables you to have full confidence that, they are well they were there all there in support uh to help find john stewart's grave um which is pretty special in itself that people will um join a trip to to go and help find a long dead relative stuck on a mountain um but uh i yeah never had to ask anybody twice they're like yep i'm in for that that would be fantastic we'd love to help come and do that i they'd known i'd been working on that project in the background for a, a fair amount of time and um, these days, if, uh, if you went there now and there was an accident, somebody passed away, um, you know, the helicopter would fly in and you'd go out on the meat trolley and then it's all very sad still. But, uh, in the 1950s pre helicopter, if somebody died in a remote region, well, you're pretty much buried where you dropped. Yeah. Um, and that's essentially what, what happened. And, um, he was left in a, uh, well, an unmarked location, but they renamed the um, pass on the mountain to uh, Stuart Saddle. So we had an indication where he would be because um, that was the area where they had reached uh, when he passed away. They were trying to get off the plateau and out of the, out of the stormy sub-zero conditions. So um, we were able to um, make our way to there uh, over, I think it took us about five days' walk to to get to there and we had dumped gear at 
Federation Peak so we could come back and climb and we dumped gear that we were going to pick up on the way out and we had gear spread out over like 50 kilometres. <laughs> Food drops, rubbish drops, cameras that no one wanted to carry anymore and there was stuff yeah. everywhere. Yes. We were yeah. talking about that off air just before of like just so much stuff that you were bringing mm-hmm. for this filming trip yeah. as well. There's all these different aspects of yeah. even just doing the trip alone like what these guys did. They didn't have all of your extra you know, mm. climbing gear. Oh, well, they probably actually did take some, some climbing Maybe gear. some climbing some, gear. Yeah. They didn't have a drone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no drones. All the power banks. Yeah. No power banks, yeah. yeah. All of that yeah. stuff, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's just that extra thing yeah. that you guys had to deal with as well. Um, and you mentioned there, too, that um, John's grave was unmarked, so you actually came into the expedition expedition wanting to find that mm. but having the in the back of your head that you might not there was um in the film it mentions that somebody else had tried to find it mm. and they were ultimately unsuccessful so going into the trip was that kind of the ultimate goal was to find you know where he was laid and how were you going to deal with it if you didn't find it as well yeah that's um something i put a lot of thought into because you could go down there and wander around looking for a needle in a haystack uh, and, and not located. And um, T- Tassie Wilderness is so thick and hard to push through. It's really impenetrable in a lot of areas. So we we did have an expectation uh, that we could come away not having found it. And uh, I don't think we would have been like, uh, like particularly embarrassed about not finding it, I think, because that was a real reality. And you're trying to find like a stone, you know, that's really quite small where he where his uh, body had been left. So, um, over the course of uh, the research, I was able to uh, find some photos that a park ranger from the 1980s had taken, um, which were were slide photos, and he'd been out in the wilderness uh, as a trail builder and marker for the parks. And he said he'd found it. So we'd found one person who'd found it. And we had a couple of photos of his from the early 1980s. And uh, he gave us uh, some scans of those photos. And we thought, oh, this is pretty good. You know, it's narrowed it down to, you know, somewhere the size of like 10 football fields, you know. So <laughs> it's much smaller, you know. So it's much smaller. It's relative, yeah. But there's still a bunch of haystacks that you're just yeah. trying to find. That's right. Yeah. yeah. That's right. And we didn't realize that those photos, when you scan them, the, the negatives are all backwards. Oh, so every right. ridge yeah. and mountain was silhouette that I, I had just like a, like a climbing map. I had uh, seared it into my memory what mm-hmm. I was looking for. And I got there and went, they're all backwards. Reversed. They're all wow. reversed. And on on that day, the it was a sub-zero day and the visibility was probably 20 metres. It was the worst weather possible. <laughs> it was, it's only because that was the day that you that were was the day and, it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it was probably the coldest day that we spent in full exposure. Um, but, uh, you know, we had a talented group of guys and we... We spread out and we had different ideas and we had somebody standing in a high point and pointing in different directions and um, trying to help coordinate, you know, maybe to have a look left and have a look right and go further across the saddle and and spread out. And, and uh, as it turned out, um, uh, a, a fellow, Tom Kramer, um, late in the morning, uh, located 
located the small plaque. It's about the size of a tennis ball, a little brass plaque that's uh, his um, rover troop, like scouts, like older scouts guys, uh, had put on the grave um, in the following summer. They put it there. But um, it's not like there was GPS coordinates or anything like that because none of that technology existed. Uh, so we, we felt really fortunate to locate it. And I'd taken a small brass plaque um, with his name and his dates uh, for his sister. And, um, I, and I, I glued it onto the, onto the rock there with a bit of information, you know, a minimal bit of information. And I had a second plaque, the same actually, which I um, glued onto the closest location where people camp because they often put in platforms where the tents go so you're out of the mud. Uh, so people knew why it was called Stuart Saddle because um, you can look on the map and there's lots of names for places, but you actually have no, no understanding of why something's given a name. And his story and that chapter uh, of exploration and adventure was really lost. It was very close to being completely forgotten and just a couple of people um, that have subsequently passed away still knew that story to help us piece it together. Now I think that story will be, uh, you know, like to see it get onto Wikipedia or somewhere as a sub page on the Southwest Wilderness so people can look it up. Stuart Saddle, who is that guy? Oh, poor bugger. <laughs> you know, he came out here in 1956 and met his end. Um, but he's part of somebody's family, you know, and part of their, their, their family story was, um, I think post-war y- years though, people, when they went to a remote place or somebody passed away and then, in good Catholic history, just, oh, we don't talk about that anymore, you know. Yeah. Just sweep that under the rug and move along, everybody. There's nothing to see here. And you lot from the trip all just go back to work and get on with your lives. Yeah. And, uh, they, yeah, the survivors had to live with knowing that uh, decisions they'd made had, had led to a fatality. And as, as much as it was John's equipment or his exhaustion or the weather, uh, ultimately everyone has to live with the consequences, yeah. And I think it's important to bring kind of that light to the story like you guys have done with the with something so simple as a plaque or you mm. know, just the film as well because like you guys out on that adventure and that trip hopefully you can kind of take it with other adventures and other trips of like how fortunate are we you know to have everything that we do have and, and to choose to do some of these trips and be relatively safe and be able to usually make good choices or at least get a helicopter out which he didn't have mm. the benefit of doing at that time yeah, so it's yeah. Just an appreciation for it. Yeah. Yeah, you've certainly brought to life an incredible story. Um and so two things that I have in mind. One is I would love to talk about the motivation behind filming it and documenting it as you did. But before we get onto that, I do want to note that the team I believe you went with was all male, but there was actually a lady on mm. his um on John Stewart's expedition, which I thought was pretty fascinating because in that era to see a woman do something like that, I would have thought that would be huge. Scandalous, I would yeah, say. Scandalous is a great word. Unmarried yeah. single woman in her yes. 20s going trekking in Tasmania with a bunch of blokes. And she didn't even know John Stewart. No, they, from what I they met in Hobart. Yeah, yeah incredible. And uh, you could film a documentary just on her and on her life stories. She was an incredible woman. Yeah. Uh, we were super fortunate to meet her and, and hear her story firsthand about how that played out and what she did. And um, <clears throat> the probably uh, stereotypes that were applied to her because of her choices 
in the 1950s to go and do that because I don't think many women were doing that sort of thing. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And then again, to bring that to current times, you know, it's like I mm. just rode my bike on the own on my mm. own in the outback. If I were to think of that as scandalous, like it just seems ridiculous. Yeah, now, it's crazy, you know? isn't it? Yeah, like it's still not something that everyone's going to do. But yeah, it's yeah. certainly it's not scandalous. But yeah, yeah, what what an incredible woman she must be. Yeah, she did end up marrying Keith Ball, the head of the trip. Oh really? Oh uh-huh. wow! Yeah, she did. Huh. Why? And uh, um, you know, they he was one of the founders of the Victorian Rock Club, and um, they were you know true sort of pioneery, adventurous people out there doing stuff just like we like to just, you know, 70 years ago. Um, so she's she was a remarkable woman and I think uh, lots of people in that era certainly were and it was less accepted or mainstream as it is today. Like feels like we're still not a mainstream activity in a lot of the things we like to do, but it's not super rare or that you go bikepacking for a week in the desert, you know, it's like, oh, good on you. That's really good. I probably wouldn't do that, but, you know, that's good on you for doing that. But then it would have been um, quite a a thing for uh, her to go and do that trip. And, yeah, we loved meeting her and and Barry, the other team member, yeah. What was her name? Sorry, just to... Glenda. Glenda. Yeah. Yeah, incredible. So, yeah, you mentioned um, Wikipedia and bringing the story to life and this history not being forgotten you chose to film this expedition. You could have just done this without documenting it that way. What was the motivation to do that? Yeah, sure. Uh, Nathan, uh, Nathan McNeil, he, he runs a, a photography and media business and uh, he's one of my adventuring uh, friends. We do lots of trips together. And when I told him the story and what I was doing, he's like, you have to document that, that people will want to know. People will want to hear stories like this. This is Australian adventurer history uh, and it's not something that like is just going to be commonplace people will really enjoy that story and although it's like a like it's an adventure story really it's a it's a human story about um the path and an experience that happened to a group of people and you know what trips are like too so with john going on that trip uh he met them at the airport or in has he maybe caught the boat actually probably went in through the port um, it was around Christmas. Uh, they'd been through New Year, so it was January. And uh, when you put a trip together, you have 12 people say, yes, I'm keen, I'm really keen, I'm going to go. And then when it comes to crunch, you know, half the team's like, oh, I can't make it. My mum said I can't go. I've got to go somewhere. I've got to work, whatever. And four people will show up. Yeah. And three of them knew each other, but none of them knew John. He was the ring-in to, cr- uh, to fill the team. Oh, wow. Because somebody okay. else had dropped out. Wow. So, um. They were all members of uh, Melbourne University Mountaineering Club and he was a member of Bosco Rovers and St Kilda Football Club and something else, you know, <laughs> and he was a runner and a and a spear fisherman and he was really, you know, quite a good athlete. Um, but you need to find out the parameters of people you do trips with and they hadn't yet established that, um, which, you know, when you're young it's easy to do. It's okay, well, John's coming on this trip and... We'll get to know him on the trip and it'll all be apples, you know, it'll be fine. But uh, Nathan said, that's a great story. And I really think it should be filmed and documented because people will uh, feel quite engaged with that. And uh, although my sort of adventuring outdoor and climbing friends 
have said, yeah, that's a great story, and I and I really lo- I really liked it, and and you guys did an amazing job to film it in those conditions. Mm-hmm. However, it's been the non climbing outdoor people that have you know sent messages and uh, wanted to ask a hundred questions that has been kind of most inspiring probably because they saw that story as something that was just unbelievable and that uh, that they did that trip in the 1950s and that we did the research and recreated the trip for them, you know, recently. So I think it was an important thing to do and I learned so much in that process because um, looking at your mug in a documentary for like <laughs> hours of footage is so hard and listening to your voice you go oh my god is like that really to your voice when yeah you edit podcasts, that's, that's right same thing. yeah and yeah. i still see scenes in it where i go i'm just cringe i'm like pointing at nothing wondering what the hell i'm doing <laughs> and i'm like i said oh god anyway but editing um film is a bit like a marriage and you have to both agree what goes in and what gets cut and what's key to the storyline and what's superfluous and when, when your story ends up being over an hour and it's too long and you have to cull stuff out, what do you cull and what do you keep? And um, fortunately, Nathan had a really good uh, eye to piece it together and um, bring it down to a, a length that was uh, sort of more deliverable. And um, also, you know, he had to work with the constraints of the material we had because we didn't have great weather most of the time. And you might notice that uh, some of the interviews up on the plateau the camera's all foggy because slrs when they're recording they heat up and it's sub-zero and then the the lens fogs up and you can worry about uh the quality of footage versus the the quality of content and once i understood the relationship between the content quality and the quality of the footage i mean it's not some you know uh fashion house's budget of you know here's fifty thousand dollars go make a film it was made on a shoestring you know and um so putting it together was a, a long process uh, uh, in, into into a film, and we're, we're super glad we have. And it's now it's out, and people can see it. It's um, it you still I can watch it, and I I watched it, gave a presentation in Brisbane recently, and I I still cringe at the things I cringe at, and I still get excited about things that happen. And I still laugh at some of the things that happen, and uh, you know the the emotion sentiment of that trip. Um, you can't hide from it. It's there. It's your family's mm-hmm. history. And families are all weird when you pull back the rug and you look in there and go, oh, boy, my family's pretty weird. And people go, oh, that's not weird. Wait till I tell you about my uncles, family. Uncles. Yeah, yeah, and they go, you're right. We've all got weird families. So I eventually had to come to terms and just deal with that's my family and that's that history of that chapter and um, be prepared to share it, yeah. Yeah, it's an incredible chapter as well. Yeah, really such such a special thing to have documented for you to always look back on and to, even if you cringe, to relive those moments mm. because seeing that, seeing yourself, seeing your emotion, it must really hit home when you do see that, no matter how many times you've looked at it in the edit suite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was quite raw, yeah. So yeah. putting it together, did it bring back those emotions? I'm sure it still does, even when you still watch yeah, it. Yeah, can, can do. Um, it was a... It was a, a real, um, you know, it, it kind of, a documentary like that can take over your life for a period of time, mm-hmm. the whole chapter. I can imagine, yeah. It, it does. You just, little bits of information and dead ends are coming and going all the time when you try and put those things together. And 
I don't know what I was supposed to be doing at that time, but that absorbed me for a, quite a long time in in the research phase. And that's a dead end, and that's this information. And how does it all piece together? And then, you know, small bits of info would come in that would complete whole chapters of a story. And I forget about a whole lot of those things. Um, in you know when you when you reflect on it, but they it's a very uh, I don't want to say it's a life changing experience, a very enriching experience to put yourself in that situation and go through it. So, yeah, and good. Clearly, clearly you have enjoyed doing it because you were talking about doing another documentary as well mm. of your recent trip to Gari. Yeah. Uh, the recently known as Fraser Island. Sarah and I both learned just today that it's not Kagari, it's Gari. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So obviously you had a good experience doing the documentary for that and you're working on something else as well. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Too? Yeah, I don't sure. Want to close the chapter by any means on the John Stewart thing, but I I love that you had so much fun doing it that you're looking at doing something else. Yeah, yeah. I, I um, I think that uh, you know, I would say that we're you know everyday outdoor people, um, and I really like to be able to share how accessible some things are. Mm, yeah. Tassie wilderness not that accessible. Yeah. Right. Right. If it, if that is type two fun at best. And you, there's a lot of preparation to go and do uh, like a trip like that. But um, if if you've got the desire, you can certainly go and do that as you can with lots of things. You just mm. how much you want to apply yourself for and how much you're willing to train and how much you're willing to um, postpone in your life so you can focus on just doing those things um, is is gives you a lot of fulfillment when, when you do do them. Um, uh, but it means you've got a pretty busy life schedule trying to juggle those things in and yeah, being in uh, Corona times, um, I went up to Gari last year with my uh, son Toby and my wife, and we had a great trip there for like a week. I'm like, this would be a really good paddle, you know. And I knew then it was like, that's coming, you know. That's something I really want to do. And um, sea kayaking's cheap compared to bike riding. You should totally get into it. <laughs> uh, funnily enough, I have because I I worked as a kayak guy, yes, and yeah. I still do have my sea kayak. Yes. If it's just hanging under my house doing nothing. And That's I, what so many of them do. I know, and it's such a waste. And it's also so much more comfortable than bike packing because you can load that boat yeah. up and it just makes it more stable and yeah, yeah. it's a bit slower. But I took a bottle of rum. Yeah, I'd like to say I the I've only actually done maybe one overnighter in my boat and yeah i took a bottle of wine <laughs> whereas i definitely wasn't doing that on my bike so, yeah, yeah on the guided trips come on everyone <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah. This, this was just me and oh. a couple of guides yeah yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. No. so yeah the gari trip uh was only uh two weeks ago and uh it's it's such a unique you know it's a unesco world heritage place uh gari or fraser island as it used to be called and uh it is truly stunning. There is so much beautiful wilderness and wildlife to see there. We saw whales and hundreds of turtles and stingrays and dolphins and uh, all, all types of seabirds and uh, things. There's lots to see there. And uh, it's really only you know, a few hours away. It's like, why don't I come here more often? Um, so that was a good experience. And um, the day before going, I decided to go and buy a drone um, and I really don't know anything about flying a drone. And I did a, a one hour drone flying for idiots on YouTube and went on a sea kayaking trip. It's like, this will work out all right. And drones over water have a bad reputation as well. Terrifying. <laughs> what could go wrong? What could go wrong? <laughs> what could go wrong? Yeah. There's 
lots of footage of me turning the wrong direction and going, I don't even know where I am <laughs> and things like that. It's funny, but yeah, somewhere in there, there'll be some 30 seconds of gold. I'm, I'm hoping. Yeah. That's so. the tough thing about filming too yeah. though, right? Is you have so much footage to go through that you might get a 30 second clip of. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a lot of time. And that was actually because I'm currently trying to edit, like say a 10 minute clip of the trip that I did. And one of my questions for you, um, when it comes to filming your adventures is, did you find that impacted your experience? Because I know from my point of view, I mean, especially I was solo, I was having to, especially when you're tired, I was having to consciously think, oh God, this would be a good bit to film and like pull out the camera and set it up. Or I was riding back and forward past my camera because it was just me. And funnily enough, side story, someone on a forum sent a message essentially saying I wasn't on my own because I said I was, but I had footage of me that someone else had shot. And I was like, no, I just took the extra time mm-hmm. to film myself. Mm-hmm. But it does, yeah. it, it, it can almost become, I don't know if a hassle is the right word, but it's a real mm-hmm. thought did you find that when you were, because you were self-filming when you were in Tassie and you're obviously doing the same mm, on your mm. paddling trip as well? Yeah, well, I think it's part of your team dynamic, deciding what you guys, what you want from the trip. Because uh, Tassie, we went in knowing that we were going to film the documentary yeah. and we needed uh, we needed the, the muscle and ability from guys who could carry 40 kilo packs for days and... Yeah. Oh boy, I, you know, as soon as something's half your body weight or or more, that is going to punish you hard. You got to be super fit for that. So, I think having uh, like a good plan and good communication around that at the start of the trip. So, uh, Tassie was a, a a bit of a different story. That's that's a long format documentary, sort of uh, 30, 35 minutes. Uh, Gari, like like what what you're saying on the bike packing is sub 10 minutes you know it's just short and sweet and this is a, a snapshot of this area and my trip and all the work I went through to ride past my camera 58 times <laughs> through sunsets and sunrises and all those things you've got to do that and that's part of sharing it and if you're driven to do that that's awesome because I think they make for great short spectacles to share with people and uh, for our Gari trip I did find that uh, being not experienced at uh, managing a drone, that uh, it would take me 15 minutes to pull a drone out of two dry bags, set it up, plug in my camera, do the GPS coordinates, get the thing up in the air, do some panoramic flying over the sand dunes and the water. And by the time I put the drone away, my friends are off the horizon in their boat and I have to try and catch up with them. And they're all fitter than me, right? So... Yeah, it's a bit of a plan. And we had GoPros uh, on on the boats as well. So um, there's lots of bits of sort of footage from in the water and tearing along the sails and storms and, and things happening. So it does add a dimension of complexity to a trip to be filming. But uh, I think uh, if you've got a, a team, there's a couple of different uh, people that are willing to contribute. It makes it fun and, and quite doable and um, I find it's something that I'm probably getting more interested in is being able to record a bit of uh, activity along the way. Um, a journalist said to me recently, he says, well, that's that's the 10-minute version of the trip. You had the 1,000-hour version. You're just sharing the 10 minutes of it that you've got that you can share. He says, but you've got the memory of the whole trip. That's what's important. Yeah. So I thought that was a really interesting comment from somebody who spent his life recording and delivering. Yeah. 
Yeah, really nice perspective. Absolutely. And also, I mean, again, if you want to compare it to the 50s, like you said, there was no digital footprint. Mm. You didn't have records. So in the future, someone's going to be able to look back in 50 years time and see that the trip yeah. that you did as well, which is very that, They'll be going to the Southwest Wilderness in their hovercraft yes. right? <laughs> with their dehydrated water. Right? Teleporting there. Teleporting. Right. Yeah, with their, what do you call those 3D things you put on your head? Oh, the, uh, the like, virtual reality. Virtual reality. It's like, oh, yeah, they won't even have to they even make the trip. Even have to go. Yeah, they can just stay, stay in their basement. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they could just go well I, I feel like i've been there now yeah exactly look at those suckers carrying those big old yeah. packs you know with that old-fashioned gear yeah. yeah isn't that terrifying i don't even want to think about it yeah, those giant cameras and all that primitive stuff that they're carrying yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but is part of that filmmaking process a little bit of um you mentioned the accessibility of say the gari trip versus tasmania mm-hmm. I, and nobody wants to say i want to inspire the next generation um, crystal kind of said in that first episode she's like I I don't want to say I inspire people to do things because I don't Mm -hmm. want to tell you how to feel inspired Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but is part of the voice behind it of hey you guys can do this too kind of thing um in terms of the Gari trip and maybe even moving forward as Mm. well if you're looking to do trips and film them Mm. yeah I think uh it's it is accessible and uh people can um go and see these things themselves for sure um she's right though uh it's, it's nice to share it and you can choose to share it or not share it. And there's things you record and you go, oh, God, I wouldn't want to share that. But uh, with GoPros and, uh, you know, uh, digital technology and drones and what have you, it's become easier to do and and simpler. And it's from the John Stewart trip, um, we've got a couple of photos shared from the uh, original um, people from the trip, but they'll have like two photos from their trip, you know. Yeah. And I grew up with film film cameras and shooting Fuji Velvia and things like that. It's like you must really want that sunset photo before you press press uh, the button, you know. So, but now it's just so easy to have media content, um, and there's a there's a lot out there you can you can drown in media content. But I think it's if it's unique and it's interesting uh, and you can share it with people and you're willing to put in the effort. It's never going to be about the money because it's not going to make you a cent, really. Uh, but it, it's fun and it's like, it's, um, I don't think people value wilderness if they don't know about it or they don't um, value uh, Indigenous cultural heritage if they don't know about it. So I, I don't plan to educate people, but if you can create awareness to what's it, what's valuable in our environment and in our culture and in, 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 in our history, then that's the path forward, I, I think. Yeah, fantastic. Very cool. I like yeah. that. Um, this is just kind of a random thing that has popped into my head. You mentioned that you did go to Fraser with um, your wife. Hmm. And was it your son that yeah. you went with? Yeah. yeah. How have they, did, have, did they show any interest in being outside with dad and going on some of those trips with you? Oh, yeah. We've done lots of trips together. Cool. Um, I love that family aspect of it. My yeah. parents were very active and I think that's contributed to a huge thing of me. Yeah, um, yeah. And I really want to share, uh, you know, if we go to the grave, you know, uh, gear rich and travel rich and cash poor that's totally fine because uh, those things are enabling us to uh, you know, take our kids or our friends or 
other people's kids and friends, it doesn't really worry me who, and, and share that with them, then they they see the value in um, natural natural environments as well. And they they came to uh, to Gari uh, a year ago and had a wonderful time. And I I'd be happy to go. I'd go back again. In you know, if I could go in two weeks, I'd go. I'd go again because there's lots to see, and it's a big place. And uh, as soon as you go away, you guys know what it's like when you travel to like an area that's re- relatively thought of as a touristy area. Uh, but as soon as you go away from the four most famous sites on that place, yeah. there is nobody, right? <laughs> By the time you get to like the 10th place, <laughs> there's no one been there for weeks, I reckon, sometimes. And there's heaps of places to explore and walk um, in, in in our own backyard where it's not crowded and it is beautiful and um, it's got a much smaller footprint to go and do those trips. And it doesn't have to be expensive either, I think. Uh, you know, Gari would have cost us less than a thousand bucks per person to go, and we chartered a dive boat to drop us over there. You know, oh, so right. oh, wow. uh, it doesn't need to be expensive to do it either. You know, yeah. it's there are expensive sports we like, like skiing and things like that, where you got all this gear and expensive lift tickets and accommodation and things like that. And uh, I do remember we got up to Harvey Bay, and the night before we had a very early start, like four or five o'clock in the morning, and we're at a caravan park, and there's all these big fancy caravan parks and brand new vehicles and you know outside tvs and chairs and it was busy and we were just packing our boats and getting our gear ready and then you know i strung up a a lightweight tarp and we were just going to sleep on the ground and people were like what are you doing it's like <laughs> where's your where's your caravan and your tent and, and your thermomix <laughs> your, yeah or your esky full of beer you know it's like well we didn't really have any of that stuff and i find often the Adventures with the least amount of gear can be the most rewarding. Or just using, I often get home from a trip and go, right, I unpacked everything and it's all full of sand. <laughs> right. Especially coming from Gary. <laughs> yeah. What in my kit have I not used on this trip that I took? Because yeah. I'll never take that again. And you go, oh, okay, didn't use a raincoat, didn't rain. Or there'll be a few things like that. Or that you're, but mostly, you know, you, if you're using everything you've taken, then you've got the right things for your trip. And it's not often expensive or a lot of stuff. It's just having the right things. It's so true. And I mean, it's all relative in terms of cost. Like I I would say, I understand people look at, like if I look at the setup I just took on my trip, there's a lot of value in that. And Mm. the minute you put ultra light in front of something, suddenly it's, you know, it's like a wedding or whatever. (laughs) The price is boosted, but you don't need that stuff Mm. to start. Like I've accrued my kit over years and years of adventure and experience. And often you want to, actually have that experience and realize like you say what do I actually need like it's all very well me looking at so-and-so's blog and they've got all this gear but mm. that might not actually work for me either yeah. it's a very personal thing my sea kayak costs 500 bucks yeah you know exactly. it's not yeah, really that's not that expensive you know yeah. that's amazing I actually thought that it would have been more of an expensive yeah thing to, you're saying that it's very cheap to get into I, I think so you know yeah, like... right yeah so part of for me, I look at, like, you You used to do a lot more, like, in your boat and stuff. I'm like, oh, I can't afford a boat. You know, I'm just not even going to look at that thing. But, yeah, what you're saying is it's a yeah. more, more accessible you get, thing. You get the front wheel of a bike for the same price as a whole kayak. <sighs> <Yeah>. True. <laughs> you show up at Malulaba Triathlon, you're like, wow. here's a house here. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, realistically, with a kayak, it's your boat, your paddle, which, yeah, you can spend some money on, but you also don't need to, and your PFD, your life jacket, and yeah. you're good to go. Like it's very Pretty simple. Much. Yeah, yeah, a few dry bags. Dry bags. And then you can yeah. paddle, float, and bilge pump, and all these things. I don't really have a bilge pump. I'm out of sponge. And transport? How do you get it to the... You need a car? The... 
Yeah, or if you live near water, you can drag it down. <laughs> Cecilia does that. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yeah. essentially, it is just that thing of it's probably more accessible than you realize. And by capturing this content and sharing that, that also shares that message as well, which is so important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I like that a lot. How are we doing time-wise? We're very conscious of your time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We'll start to kind of wrap it up. Thank you so much again. It's been like, that was an amazing, again, the video was awesome. The short film, is there anywhere that people can find it? Or is it still the Yeah, it's, uh, it's currently, uh, one of the films in the wild film festival. that's uh, touring around the country in all States. And, uh, I don't know when that runs to, probably through to Christmas, I'd say. But it, yeah, it, it, it was showing in, I don't know, 20 or 30 different uh, towns and cities around the country. Yeah. So I think it premiered in Sydney yesterday. So I had some nice messages this morning when I got up, which was kind of cool for people I didn't really know that well or you haven't seen for a long time. Uh, so yeah, it's in the in that film festival. Uh, I don't know what happens to it after that. I've got no experience with those things. I think it'll end up being a download somewhere. Um from uh, either Set in Stone or from uh, Adventure Plus, which is a, a platform of um, outdoor sort of active active films and adventures. And uh, hopefully people can get out and see it. It'd be great. Amazing. Yeah, that'd be super cool. So usually to wrap it up, there's one more question. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so um, I think you know the story because you made reference to this before we even started um, recording. <laughs> but... For those who haven't listened, um, I was coaching a group of little girls mountain biking at Sugarback Trails, our local network, and it's an hour session and these little girls can't make it through the hour without needing to go to the toilet, essentially. And they would always ask, hey, we need to go for a wild wee. So wild wee's become part of our vernacular here now. <laughs> and the uh, the question we have for you, Rob, is where has your wildest wee been? Yeah, well, I I did uh, I did want to have a think about that because I could easily be put on the spot and have no answer because boys tend to wee in lots of places. You know? This is always how people introduce their story, yeah. and I love it. Yeah, it's like well, which one to choose? I'd like, I'd like to apologise for all of them, but um, okay. The 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 one I thought I would refer to was uh, in Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado. Uh, a couple of years ago with a good friend, Lee Kujes, we went to climb uh, Long's Peak, which is the diamond, which I think is the highest peak in the park, maybe. It's one of the 14ers. I should know that in metres, but uh, all the maps and guides are in feet. Anyway, we went to Long's Peak, and uh, that's, I think, either a six miles, about 10K walk in, and you're probably at a 12,000 feet, and we left at 2 o'clock in the morning. And walked in, and then you cross a glacier, and then you get up to the base of the wall, and then maybe it's uh, 12, 14 pitches of climbing. So you're pretty much going to be on there most of the day, um, depending on, you know, did you get on the wall first, and, and anyone in front of you, how the weather is, and things like that. And about two-thirds way up, we got um, we caught up to uh, a guide and a client that were moving torturously slow. So we got delayed and I I do remember maybe two pictures from the top um it was starting to like that snowy hail you get it's there's a certain name for that I can't remember what it's called sleet, sleet. is usually sleet. what we call yeah. it it was yeah. super cold and there was 
lightning around and things like that. We're like, oh boy, we really should be off here by now. But I had to pee. I could not make it to the top. So that's a solid 500 meter wee off a 14,000 foot mountain. I thought that was that's pretty impressive. good. You want to make sure you've got downdraft is the only thing because updraft's bad for wild wees on cliff faces. <laughs> and while we were there, there was some fella over on the side of the escarpment on the glacial bowl while we were waiting who was singing opera at the top of his lungs. No. Uh, Italian opera was blowing on the winds across the whole mountain range. It was extraordinary. Yeah. So you had all the experiences. Like you had the music in your ears coming through. <laughs> the romantic was, notion. There. Yeah, the wonderful scenery and the harsh the weather. Cold. Yeah, you harsh were weather. it all in this wild and way. The <laughs> yeah. And then we finally topped out, uh, I think, at like 6 o'clock at night and then a 10-mile stodge out. Yeah, from the top down. It was a big day. Yeah. <laughs> Epic day. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big day. It was but a memorable day, you know, it's one of those big days. A small amount of gear and a whole lot of adventure. Yeah. yeah that's that cool. Incredible. Yeah. Rob, there's probably so many things that we could talk to you about. Like even just that one trip alone probably seems like it could be a half hour, forty five <laughs> minute, you know, retail of the story. So um there's so much more I know that we didn't even touch the surface of you but yeah thank you again for for coming along and sharing some of those stories yeah yeah thank you so much and if there is anywhere online that people can look you up or look the film up where would you direct them to you oh um well thanks for having me i've really enjoyed it's been great meeting you guys and hopefully we can go see kayaking yeah, you know? I'll buy a I boat. Thinking, if it's 500 yeah. bucks, I'll buy a boat. <laughs> I, I bought a second one. Don't tell my wife. It's another $500 one, but you can borrow that one. Is, is sea kayak, so is it like bikes? Is it N plus one? Yes. <laughs> that's right. More more is more. Yeah. Sea kayaks. More is yeah. more. More, yeah, more is absolutely. more, yeah. You need a quiver as well. Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah. I mean, you've got a plastic one and a glass one, so we've got all bases covered. And then mine's a skeg boat, and you could get one with a rudder. So I mean, right. yeah. Have you got a sail? No, I don't, but I that looks a, so I've much got a fun. sail. The sail's good. It's like it's like going it's like riding with a tailwind. Yeah. Yeah. It looks incredible. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Uh I think probably the easiest place to catch me is on Instagram. Um I think it's at one momentum. Yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> I don't look at yeah, it. We didn't even talk much. about this as well, but one of your very most recent posts has been you uh beekeeping and getting into all of that, which we had a nice conversation about too. So bees are wonderful. Um, yes. So much to learn. So much to learn. Yeah. So yeah, we can uh, talk about that later as well. <laughs> oh, it's been so much fun. Thank you so Thank much. You Thank, Thank you guys. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, that's been amazing. Thanks for listening to another episode of Into the Wee Hours podcast. To get in touch, you can find us on Instagram at Into the Wee Hours Podcast or email us at Into the Wee Hours Podcast at gmail.com. On Instagram, Sarah is all the gear, nay idea, and that is N A E for all you non Scots people, and Kristen is at Kristen Vodden. To read the show notes or to listen on the website, you can visit into the wee forward slash podcast. And to help support this podcast, you can also head over to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash into the wee hours podcast. Happy adventuring and we will talk to you next time.